So I think the starting point for me, therefore, is that I, I think it's brilliant that we have all these uh, products available that we can use to make our lives simple. You know, the one example I always give is of my late grandmother who lived on a hill uh, in the middle of a, a rural area and uh, at the age of 90 would get her pension paid into a bank account and she would have to get on a bus to go to the nearest town to uh, withdraw her pension go to the stores buy her groceries and then do everything in reverse to get back to the top of that hill and i always thought to myself with fintechs if they were available to cover all of these processes she wouldn't have to go through that entire process and as these fintechs came along uh, and all these products came along you know i could see the benefit of having them but at the same time i imagine my grandmother dealing with issues of privacy of cyber security of whether in fact the particular fintech product she is using is registered or not so like you say there are a multitude of legal and regulatory issues that need to be considered as far as these products are concerned welcome to the tech legal matters podcast by iAfrican radio since 2015, we at iAfrican.com have been doing research and publishing about significant data breaches and leaks across Africa. Some we have reported on publicly, while others were too sensitive and we simply notified the relevant authorities without publicly reporting on them. During the same period, we have also researched and reported extensively on cybersecurity, privacy, and data protection-related matters across Africa. What we have always observed is that not many people and organizations understand the legal implications of the various technologies that they use. In this podcast, we will explore these topics and more, with a specific focus on the intersection of technology and the law, how that affects you as an individual, but also from a business perspective. New episodes of the Tech Legal Matters podcast will be broadcast every Friday. The podcast will also feature analysis, insights, and commentary from attorneys who specialize in information and communications technology law. My name is Defo Mohapi, and I will be your host. Now for a word from our sponsors. Hello. My name is Lucien Pierce, an attorney in South Africa. What I have noticed over the years is that technology continues to challenge the legal system. What I mean is that sometimes laws battle to keep up with the speed at which technology is changing and the various new technologies that are launched. At Pukube Pierce Masitela Attorneys, our team of lawyers all have a passion for information and communications technology law and are well versed in the latest technologies and the laws applicable to them in South Africa. With 15 years of experience as a law firm in South Africa, we specialize in information and communications technology, marketing and advertising, and infrastructure related to these sectors. PPM Attorneys has a long list of satisfied clients and an unblemished record. So visit us at ppmattorneys.co.za and talk to us about all your legal matters related to technology. Over the past two decades, we have witnessed the growth in the number of financial technology solutions available to consumers in South Africa. Known more commonly as fintech, these solutions aim to make the lives of customers easier by mostly offering what customers would need to do physically at a bank or financial services institution on a digital app. However, such convenience comes with its own risks. Joining me on this uh, Tech Legal Matters episode is uh, Lucien Pierce. Lucien, good to have you again. Hi, Tefo. It's always great to chat. I'm glad to be back. Great. We have various uh, 
fintech solutions, as I mentioned, some of them aim to replace banking services. Some of them are remittance services. We've even seen recently robo-advisors for investment services and in some case, insurance services. But they come with various amounts of risks because from a point of security, firstly, from a point of privacy and data protection, and just generally with the amount of data they collect because they are apps and on your phone, they are able to tell a picture about you that if leaked or however it is abused can be misused. Yeah, so I think the starting point for me, therefore, is that I, th I think it's brilliant that we have all these uh, products available that we can use to make our lives simple. You know, the one example I always give is of my late grandmother who lived on a hill uh, in the middle of a, a rural area and uh, at the age of 90 would get her pension paid into a bank account and she would have to get on a bus to go to the nearest town to uh, withdraw her pension, go to the stores, buy her groceries, and then do everything in reverse to get back to the top of that hill. And I always thought to myself, with fintechs, if they were available to cover all of these uh, uh, um, uh, processes, she wouldn't have to go through that entire process. And as these fintechs came along uh, and all these products came along, you know, I could see the benefit of having them. But at the same time, I imagine my grandmother dealing with issues of privacy, of cyber security, of whether in fact the particular fintech product she is using is registered or not. So like you say, there are a multitude of legal and regulatory issues that need to be considered as far as these products are concerned. All right. And I'd like to us to start on the privacy and the data protection sort of risk attached to these solutions. I know with, I'll use one example, a popular one in Kenya, it's called branch.io. It's a they call it a financial inclusion solution. That's what most of the fintech solutions like to brand themselves at. But it's just a digital lending app. Basically, for listeners who are not aware of what branch is, is it, they loan you money. They're like a micro lender. Instead of having branches, you do all this on your mobile phone. But the big part of branch, the app, is that they use data on your phone to determine how much you qualify for. What I mean by that is that they look at who you communicate with regularly. So when you install the app, it check, you need to give it sort of full admin permissions to your phone. So it needs to be able to read your SMSs, specifically your Mpesa, which is popular in Kenya, to see the transactions you, 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 you are doing on your Mpesa account, how much they are for, who they are with, and then using all sorts of algorithms and Artificial intelligence, as they say, they determine how much money you qualify for. But that brings back the question of privacy and data protection to say, do they really need that much info from a person's phone to determine how much to lend them? Yeah, so it, it's, it's scary, uh, the extent some of these uh, lenders go to. Uh, I suppose the issue is, is what you, as the consumer, are agreeing to. If, of course, you're aware that they are going to um, harvest all this information from all these various sources and you make that decision knowing that this is the case, then that is the contract and the bargain that you've entered into. The problem arises where you sign up for these services and are unaware of the extent to which 
these service providers go. In that instance, I certainly think that there are going to be legal and regulatory issues that will arise. Privacy, as you say, is probably one of the most uh, important ones because they're essentially observing every aspect of your life. Uh, there are other aspects that could potentially arise. So if you take South Africa's Protection of Personal Information Act, it has provisions which say that where a decision is taken that affects you, and that decision is an automated decision without any human intervention, in such instances you might have the opportunity to challenge that decision where it, it is effectively negative uh, against you. So, so there are those aspects that arise. But for me, like you say, the fact that they are observing every aspect of your life, are taking information from your device, that would need to be very explicitly conveyed to the individuals who are using the service. If not, then I suspect that there is a, a legal issue, potentially some sort of breach of the law by these providers. No, correct. I think we've also seen, I know we talk about South African law on the podcast, but I think that's what started to happen during the COVID-19 pandemic in Kenya, where they've started sort of clamping down. Not only were they collecting a lot of data, but they were operating, as some would say, like loan sharks with very excessive moving, sort of maneuvering around regulations by charging high administration fees, not necessarily charging high interest, but if you calculated everything together over a short period of time, because the loans, I think, were anything from a month to three months or six months, because they're short term, then you pay high administration fees, high fees for also all manner of things, excluding the interest. But when you calculate them, you find that this is quite a high amount. So they've started clamping down on them. Yeah, so so in those instances, of course, now you, you, you're covering a whole realm of, of laws. So you could potentially look at, again, I don't know what the uh, credit laws yes. are like in, in uh, Kenya, but if you were in South Africa, you would probably have the national credit regulator looking at that process as well from a lending perspective to see whether any of these additional charges, you know, the facilitation fees, yes, et cetera, that you are mentioning fall within what is permitted. Because that is a very, if it is being done, it could well be a very sneaky way to, to increase the effective interest rate. You know, the loan that you're repaying once all these additional costs are added on ends up potentially being 30, 40 percent uh, of the capital amount that you, 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 you were lent. That's exactly it. And I think even Google earlier in the year started saying some of these apps, because it's not just Kenya, it's just in other countries around the world, they're going to start clamping down on them because the effective, as you say, interest rate that they eventually charge on these loans becomes ridiculous. But what I liked is you mentioned something about automated advice or automated actions you get from some of these apps. What we've seen recently and specifically in South Africa is things called robo-advisors. Uh, whether it be in insurance when selecting insurance products or whether it be in investment products where you're looking to invest your retirement annuity or just normal investment. And the theory or the premise behind these is that you fill in a few questions or they ask you a few questions like a human being would and they give you advice and they adjust your investments based on the robo-advisors, algorithm, or artificial intelligence. But there could be prejudice there, No. Yeah, certainly there could be prejudice. Um, you know, we've heard over time that that's in certain instances where where you have artificial intelligence making decisions uh, about certain circumstances that sometimes they can be skewed against a particular profile. Uh, you know, we've had uh, examples of where uh, black people are essentially... Um, 
viewed as higher risk in certain instances as far as lending, et cetera, is concerned. So it could well be that, that as far as robo-advisors are concerned, you, you could well get certain uh, of those, those, those issues arising, you know. And, and there are other aspects as well. You know, you have to think about uh, uh, what happens if a robo-advisor gives you bad advice. Uh, was it negligent or not? And if the robo-advisor is the one that gave the advice, what happens to the people in the background, the company that owns the robo-advisor? So there are lots of issues that can certainly arise in, in those instances. Uh, but you, you're right. There, there are many, many issues that, that, that will come up and that will need to be addressed as a result of these new products. But let's touch on that. I mean, who effectively is responsible if a robo-advisor gives a bad decision? Well, that's the thing, and, and there is quite a bit of debate about it across the globe. You know, there was even discussion l during the course of last year uh, in the EU as to whether you could actually give uh, robots and uh, uh, their own identity and create uh, an individual, a legal entity, precisely. Uh, and of course, the, the decision was that it, it's, it's not appropriate to do that because you need to look to the people behind Who that. Who coded that. Exactly, yeah. precisely. So, so the reality is is that it will be the people behind the coding who are, are, are held liable for, for things that go wrong. If you remember, Microsoft went through an exercise where they created uh, an artificial intelligence that was meant to be able to hold a conversation. But purely through influence, uh, bad uh, people were able to to cause it to adopt a racist attitude simply yes, because, by interacting with it. Yes, because they, uh, the, the theory, if I understand correctly, behind artificial intelligence is that there's something called machine learning. Correct. So by interacting, by collecting more data and learning through that data, it then learns how to give out whatever data it gives out, whether it be a conversation or advice. So, yes, I would, I would, I would admit that it would eventually become racist if it interacted in, with racist people. Yeah. So the point there being that when, this, when Microsoft realized that this was happening, they very quickly withdrew that particular uh, piece of uh, artificial intelligence because they knew that ultimately they were the ones who had programmed it and uh, they would be the ones who would need to get rid of this particular flaw uh, in in its machine learning, so so eventually, like uh, like you say, it's going to be the ones who who uh, encode and yeah. produce this particular piece of software. If I can put it as simply as that. In South Africa, do we have any specific laws around robo advisors? There isn't anything specific as yet. So if if something had to go wrong and some damage had to arise, then the reality is we would, for now, have to use our good old-fashioned ordinary laws of delict, which essentially deal with damages and economic loss and those sort of things. Um, I, I suppose in time, we're likely to, to have laws that will address these issues. Um, if you consider the Cyber Crimes Act is an act that is specifically being drafted to address the types of crimes that are likely to arise because of uh, the cyber world we live in, to address issues like copyright, where clever lawyers in the past could um, wangle their way out of a particular charge because it didn't fall within... Uh, Specific what law? Was, exactly, yeah. exactly. You mentioned Cyber Crime Act, and that's the next point and key issue around fintech I want us to talk about, which is security. I mean, with money becoming digital, which is the aim of all these fintech solutions, is that especially during this pandemic, is that you shouldn't use physical cash. Everything must move digitally. We are now handing apps and 
technology into the hands of normal consumers and who might not be technically skilled or adapt to protecting their devices, to protecting their money on these apps, etc. Who then becomes liable to firstly educate consumers or people who are using these apps on security measures they need to take to protect their money? And who becomes eventually liable should something happen? Well, to, to answer the first question, uh, it's in my view, if you're presenting a product to a consumer, you as the service provider are obliged to present something that is reasonably safe and secure um, for, for the, the average person to use. So it's up to you then to make sure that you educate the consumer on how that product uh, can be used and how, uh, what vulnerabilities there might be in using it and how to avoid those vulnerabilities causing you some harm. So you would have seen some banks uh, take online banking or mobile banking. Um, in those instances, typically, you will find every now and again that before you're allowed to use the particular product, um, you, you will get some sort of warning uh, yes. or, or some sort of um, information page that tells you what the most recent uh, cybercrime activities are and how to avoid them. So the, the banks, take the banks, for example, will do that because they're offering this product. They know what the vulnerabilities are and there's a duty on them to then make sure that their users are aware of that. So, so that, uh, that, that's where the liability would, would lay. You had a second aspect. Yes, the second aspect is should something happen? Now I'm this consumer using this app, fintech, whether it be investment, whether it be insurance, whether it be banking, and by some reason the security is breached specifically on my account, on my app, and I lose money. Who takes liability? Because now this is not physical cash where you can say somebody stole it from me so I can't hold the bank liable or somebody broke into the bank physically and stole money from the bank. This is something sitting on an app and they managed to break specifically security on my phone or on the app, etc. Yeah. In, in that instance, there would be an assessment that would look at at where uh, liability uh, falls for for that particular breach, so you know the the approaches and 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 the attacks that typically happen to consumers uh, happen often. You'll find that there's a particular methodology that cyber criminals might use. So the banks have a particular way of assessing how a, a, an incident might have happened, and if they're able to. Uh, and often they try and do this, they will attribute uh, fault to the consumer and say that you either released a one-time password to these cyber criminals or you disclosed your uh, PIN uh, to, to, to somebody you shouldn't have disclosed it to. So often there will be an assessment to see where the fault uh, falls as far as this particular incident is concerned. Okay, so it's not a straightforward thing of saying, oh, it was broken on the app, therefore the bank is responsible. Well, in, in those instances, certainly you could attribute fault to the bank. So if the bank, let's say it's a bank or an insurer or whoever, presents an app that might have a, 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 a hidden problem, if we can use lay, layperson's terms, a vulnerability that should have been found, and then there is a breach that occurs. In that instance, if the consumer can show that that was the cause of this breach that resulted in them losing money or suffering some sort of harm, then 
it, it is certainly going to be the bank or the insurer or whoever it is that must take uh, responsibility for that. So essentially, they must provide a product which is reasonably secure and up to industry standards. Okay. I mentioned this because recently, I mean, fintech not only applies to financial services institutions, but it's become part of many businesses. Many businesses use fintech solutions to accept payments, to distribute payments, etc. A very popular South African prepaid service that sells prepaid vouchers for things like Showmax, for Netflix, and all sorts of services for airtime, for electricity, suffered a ransomware attack over the weekend. And uh, I think it took them a couple of days. But what's important is that part of that ransomware attack was the attacker said that they were able to collect credit card data of their customers. Yes. And now that becomes very interesting. Then who becomes liable in that case if customers should lose money? Yeah, so in that instance, you would probably look at what the industry standard is for storing credit card information. Uh, I I am aware that there are certain standards that are required, payment cards, industry standards, that require you to hold that data in a very secure manner that should not easily be accessible. So in this instance, one would look at whether this particular service provider was subject to that particular regulation and whether they complied with it. And if they didn't, in other words, if they were substandard and they were negligent, then they're going to be highly liable, in my view, for any subsequent losses that individuals might suffer, whether, you know, as a result of fraud and their credit card details being used. So, so it would be an assessment as to whether the service provider had applied the required security standards to that credit card information. Which brings me to the next point. Most of these companies end up outsourcing their fintech solutions to other companies, whether it be the storage of data in terms of data protection or whether it be from a payments perspective. So where does law come in in that aspect to say, do we look at the company that I interacted with or do we even look further down the line in terms of their service providers? Yeah. So in far, insofar as uh, personal information is concerned, uh, there is an obligation on the party, the initial party, let's say the bank, that might be outsourcing uh, a particular service and passing personal information onto that third-party service provider. There's an obligation on the bank, the originator, to make sure that whoever they are passing that information onto has the same or better standards than they have. So there's an obligation to go and actually check and make sure that that service provider uh, has the appropriate standards. So if there's a breach at the service provider that causes some sort of loss of personal information, the reality is that it's still going to be the bank, for example, that is liable for for, um, any damages that happen. So they can't get away with it and say it was our service provider that... In this instance, absolutely. In this instance, there's no finger pointing. It will come back to the source. Um, Now, as far as information security is concerned, in that instance, there would be a contractual obligation uh, on the, the originator... <clears throat> excuse me, uh, to to ensure that whoever they were outsourcing this information to uh, applies the required and appropriate standards uh, for that particular information. Okay. Now, another use of fintech, if we can put it that way, is in the remittance industry where you are able to send money to different countries. Instead of using a bank, you visit either a branch or, again, you use an app on your phone to register and, and send this money to people. 
And these companies also collect a lot of data on you and they do all sorts of verifications. And one of those types of verifications is through biometrics. So I've seen quite a number of them require you on when you're sending the money to give you their to give them your biometrics, whether it be fingerprints or or your iris. And on the other side for verifications, because many countries across the continent don't have a valid ID system and not everybody's got a passport, they require those people to also do biometric authentication. This becomes, from a legal perspective and from uh, from data and from privacy, etc., it becomes a bit of a challenge because biometrics can be, especially fingerprints, collected from different sources, whether it be surfaces. We touch many things. That's how this current virus is spread. We touch many surfaces, etc. And what's the law around that? How 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 is it? In, let me give a, an example. If somebody collects money on the other side and they use somebody else's fingerprint, how is it proved that that was, that was the actual person? Yeah, it, it, you know, firstly, as far as biometrics are concerned, particularly fingerprints, we're dealing with what we would call sensitive information. Uh, the reason that fingerprints are so sensitive is that you are not capable of changing your fingerprint. The only way of getting rid of it is to burn it off. Yes, yes. So, so that has to be really taken care of um, to the highest standards by whoever you are giving it to. So in the event of a breach, I would expect that as far as a uh, biometrics are concerned, there would be much heavier penalties on whoever you've provided it to uh, if they were negligent. But insofar as somehow fraud has been committed by somebody who has managed to to copy your, your fingerprint, however that may be done, uh, again, that would come down to simply uh, a case of whose story makes more sense. So if you are denying that you were ever in perhaps sending, uh, picking up money in, in Kenya using your fingerprint, you would then have to demonstrate that you never left the borders of South Africa. So how could you be there? And in that instance, that would be a reasonable explanation. And whoever allowed the funds to be um, paid out would then have to effectively refund you in, in that instance. So it comes down to weighing up the evidence on a balance of probabilities in this particular instance. Whose story is more convincing? And now going back to payments technology in fintech, I've seen recently some of the companies that offer these card processing tools that are more affordable than we used to have previously for small businesses. What they do and they've started doing is, especially during the lockdown, is you'll find that they, well, we've come to realize that they collect data in terms of obviously the transactions that each small business does. And they've been able to report on things like how many of these businesses are coming back online and how much was the, the, the small business economy affected by this? Is that legal or if you agree to it in your contract, that's fine? Secondly, some of them have started offering loans based on this data, like I mentioned with the consumer app in Kenya, but some of them are doing it in South Africa for companies, for small businesses to say, we've got your transaction data. We know how much you're processing monthly for card payments. We don't know, obviously, on cash payments, but we can see your card payment. So based on this data, we can advance you a loan of X amount. Yeah, so in those instances, again, uh, your financial information, whether it be of an individual or whether it be of a legal entity under our uh, Protection of Personal Information Act, um, that is personal information that you as an individual or as an entity are allowed to control. Uh, 
So if these card companies are going to use your data for purposes of uh, approaching you to offer you loans, you would need to have agreed to them using that information for purposes of assessing your credit worthiness and coming to you to offer loans. So if you simply agreed that you are giving your personal information purely for the purpose of a payment to be made, and they suddenly start assessing it, analyzing it, um, bringing in other data to create a profile of you, in that instance, they would be breaking the law. I, I have no doubt about that uh, because they're basically building up a profile by drawing information from perhaps third-party uh, sources and then taking the information that you've willingly given them but for a specific purpose and now using it for a, a, a different purpose that you never agreed to. In that instance, they would definitely be breaching um, provisions of Popeye, our our Personal Information Act. Interesting. As we wind up this episode, you, I think you wanted to give an example of a, of a remittance service when we're talking about uh, fintech? Yes. No, I was, I was going to talk uh, about uh, a, a company called Makuru, for example, yeah. that uh, allows you to... Um, uh, remit money across Africa. And, uh, you know, just looking at the way it provides its service touches on almost all the aspects that you've mentioned. You know, if you think about uh, banking regulation, although they're not a bank, they would require a particular type of license called an Adler license to, to send uh, money and process money. They would also probably be subject to uh, our National Payments System Act, which is essentially the infrastructure behind money, how money is shifted around. They might might also, in this instance, I don't know if they lend money, but there's the National Credit Act. Then, of course, there's POPIA, Protection of Personal Information Act, because one of the ways you are allowed to register is, as you say, by taking a picture and providing some biometrics. So the reason I raise this is that just one business like that could be subject to five, six, or seven pieces of legislation uh, that, that govern them. So, so in this instance, it's a highly regulated sector uh, and, and not that easy to get into. But I think at the same time, it is necessary to protect the average consumer by having these various pieces of legislation that uh, govern these these. Um, uh, providers. So yes, I think in South Africa, uh, our uh, financial system is very respected uh, because of the, the high amount of regulation uh, that we have. Some might argue it stops innovation. And I say that because you raise a very important point about Mukuru. If you look at Mpesa, which is popular in Kenya, it operates under the Safaricom brand, which is a telecommunications company, not a bank, no banking license. And they've tried several times to Launch. They're still in the country, but they've failed to gain as much traction as they did in Kenya. And if you look closely, it's simply because every time they've had to launch, they've had to partner with a bank in South Africa. And I think it speaks exactly to your point that the regulations are a bit robust in South Africa, and especially when it comes to money. I, I, indeed. And that brings me back to the example of my grandmother. You know, we, we now have something uh, uh, called the Intergovernmental Fintech Working Group, which is a, a committee set up by the South African Reserve Bank, SARS, um, the Financial Services, uh, FSB, as it used to be called. Um, and they are looking at ways of making fintech products, including potentially banking products, a lot more easily available and accessible and perhaps uh, with a lighter touch 
uh, of regulation. Um, so if they get it right, then we'll see a lot more of these these products and fintechs coming up that uh, will be a little easier to set up um, because of this particular process. And I, I, I think there is an eagerness on the part uh, of Saab and all the others involved with the IFWG to try and facilitate uh, fintechs and to have a lighter touch to, to regulating them. So let's hope that uh, they make progress on that and that we see a lot more of these products that, that, that can come up and make our lives a lot easier, even the grannies. Let's hope so. And thank you for your time, Lucien. You're welcome. It's always good, Defo. Thank you. As we always say on the Tech Legal Matters podcast, although we're discussing legal matters, this does not constitute legal advice. Please contact your attorney or PPM attorneys. Cheers. Now for a word from our sponsors. Hello. My name is Lucien Pierce, an attorney in South Africa. What I have noticed over the years is that technology continues to challenge the legal system. What I mean is that sometimes laws battle to keep up with the speed at which technology is changing and the various new technologies that are launched. If you are experiencing this challenge, our lawyers at PPM Attorneys all have a passion for information and communications technology law and are well versed in the latest technologies and the laws applicable to them in South Africa. Visit us at ppmattorneys.co.za and talk to us about all your legal matters related to technology. Remember to tell your friends, family and colleagues that the show is available to listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer or any other app that you use to listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to head over to www.iafrican.com forward slash radio. That is www.iafrican.com forward slash radio. And subscribe to get notified on new episodes of the Tech Legal Matters podcast and any other iAfrican radio shows. Stay safe on the web.